All right. Wow. Guys, thank you so much. And uh, uh, those of you who don't, who don't know Lewis, he has, um, his family's been a part of Tyler for a long time. If you've ever heard of a little thing called Swan Furniture, um, uh, that's their family. And Lewis um, determined to be involved in mission and ministry and uh, has grown himself in, in the type of disciple and that he is and the type of missionary that he is over the last few years. It's been amazing to watch that. And we came alongside them when they were still called Believe and See. That's uh, the same ministry. And um, uh, I will tell you, this is such a fun church. One of the funnest, coolest things about being the pastor here, there's a lot of things, but one of them is Lewis called me one day and said, I, I don't know what who to talk to because we have a team on the ground and we just had a donor, a $10,000 donor back out with, with no warning. And we're going to, uh, was it 10000 Do you remember? And we're going to, and, and like, well, I'm about to have to call them and tell them we can't do surgery. I mean, we're, they're there, and I'm about to have to call them and tell them we can't do it. And, um, and I said, don't, don't call anybody. Just, just relax and let me send out a, so I sent out a handful of emails, and in about 25 minutes, the $10,000 was there, just to some people saying, I know this is a ministry you would be passionate about as a part of our church. Would you like to make sure these surgeries go through? And um, apparently that was an easy decision for a handful of people to say, well, yeah. And so, um, and so that type of thing, um, we, we have as a church, you have um, one, one dollar out of every 10 goes to ministries uh, like site.org. And uh, so this church, I don't even know the exact number because uh, Dwayne, it's not here. He's up with the youth. Dwayne might know it or somebody else. Somebody else know the exact number we give to them. Right? And, and I don't, I don't and it's, at some levels, like, I don't, I don't care because um, this is a generous church and we, we vet these different ministries and then we give generously to them. And so if you, if you couldn't follow what Lewis was saying, the point he was making was literally the donation this church gave funded 30 something of those 50 surgeries and 250 people converted and wow. And so between that and, and baptism and this, then the worship time, the singing time of our worship that you just experienced, I hope you feel that you have been led into the presence of an amazing, impressive God. Because um, that's been the leadership so far. John and his team led us well there. And then uh, I think you guys did a great job communicating that same message. Um, that is uh, always amazing to hear what God is doing. Um, a lot of times really despite us. Um, but certainly, when we get to be a part of it, it's really amazing. If you've got your Bible, jump over to Judges chapter 1. Um, I did get one email this week. I encourage you, if you've got questions or challenges as you read ahead in Judges, and, uh, and you go, wow, what is this about? And then send me an email, and I will see if I can find out, and I will weave that into the sermon series. And uh, we will touch, maybe, if we get there, on one of them today that I got. I did get one email with a series of questions. And because uh, and, this, this is a tough book, as I talked about last week, so I'm not going to whine anymore about that. I got all my whining out of my system last week about the toughness of this book. Judges chapter 1, and really, and 2, and into 3, is, is kind of a report. So you can imagine that you're like a general or a colonel, and, and you're getting an update, you're getting, or the president, you're getting an update on the state of the war as it stands right now. Um, and so in Judges chapter 1, um, that's where we are. Um, the, the bat, at the death of Joshua and the war against the land of Canaan and the people who live there is still ongoing. One of the questions you may wrestle with, and rightly so, is the idea that God sent his people in to essentially commit genocide. Um, he sent his people to Canaan 
to wipe out a people or at least drive out a people. Sometimes it's specific. Some cities it is specific. Wipe them out. Man, woman, child. Sometimes it is more general. Drive them out. Send them out. Or, or kill them. That's, that should be, on our modern sensibilities, that should be hard for us to stomach. Right? Keep in mind, um, it is not ever appropriate for humans to do that. Um, humans don't have the authority to take human life um, unless it is given to us by God. That's the point at the, end of, um, at the end of the flood when God is having his first, one of his first conversations with Noah after the flood. He proclaims that man does not shed man's blood. That's not how this works. If he does, then his blood shall be shed. That's how this works. You don't, you don't get to do that because, not because you're so cool, not because you're so special, not because we're so awesome, but because we're created in God's image, and part of being created in God's image is an expression of ownership. Our. We are not ours. We are his. Therefore, we don't have the authority to break his stuff. Um, when your kids go through your stuff, they don't have the authority to break your stuff. We don't have the authority to break his stuff. And we are his stuff. And so unless he gives us permission, unless he says, yes, under these conditions, I want you to kill another human. Keep in mind, God makes that he forbids the killing of humans by other humans at the end of what event? What did I just tell you? The flood. Does anything about that imply that God is limiting his own authority to take human life? Not even vaguely. He just wiped out civilization as it was known at the time. So he is not limiting his authority because God has the wisdom, knowledge, insight, understanding, experience to make that call. We don't. And so is it odd for us, the thought that God would send his people in to wipe out these people? Oh, yes, it is. And if one of us chose to do that, we would be wrong. But God understood the situation well enough. He knows what the, he knows what the world would be like today if Jericho hadn't been wiped out. He knows. What would, what, would the, what would the world be like today, 3,500 years later, if every man, woman, and child in Jericho hadn't been killed? Do you know? No, you don't. Do I know? No clue. Did God know? Yes. That's the type of decision-making he's got. Keep in mind, God had told Abraham, by the way, I'm going to send your descendants back to wipe these people out. But at the time, they weren't evil enough. God told Abraham, they aren't worthy of being wiped out yet. When they are, I will send my people, your descendants, to do so. How much later was it before the people of Israel showed up to wipe out the Canaanites? 500 years. Twice as long as the United States has been in existence, God waited. And the people of Canaan got wickeder and wickeder and more and more wicked, whichever is the correct way of saying that. <laughs> it was worse and worse and worse, right? I will give you a little insight into the culture that they had developed by the time the Israelites showed up in a minute. It's, it's incredibly difficult to describe the culture they lived in in a mixed company. I'll do my best, but it's not going to be easy. Um, so Joshua has his beautiful, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord speech. He kind of wraps up the entire nation of Israel working together. Uh, they have made huge inroads into defeating the Canaanites. They've defeated some of the major cities. They've... they've um, unintentionally kind of enslaved some of their enemies. Um, but then he dies, and now what? Who's going to lead us? God chooses Judah, and Simeon comes alongside Judah, the, the tribe of Judah and Simeon. 
They defeat the Canaanites and Perizzites at their first battle. In one of those weird little judges' stories, they torture the king of the Perizzites in the same way that he had tortured 70 other kings by cutting off his thumbs and big toes. I got, I got nothing for you. Um, apparently, he had done that to 70 kings. And so when they did it to him, he proclaimed it just. Like he said, it's just what you've done to me because I've done it to 70 kings. And then he died. Again, it's just there. Um, uh, they took Jerusalem but never totally cleared the city. The Jebusites continued to live there, which would become a headache for David a few generations later. Um, Caleb, the hill country falls, the desert mostly falls, the lowlands, many of them fall. Um, Caleb challenges everyone to take a certain city. Uh, apparently this was worth a story because it, it gets set aside that, that K- Caleb comes out to everybody and he, apparently um, he had a daughter worth fighting for because he said, anyone who takes this city will get to marry my daughter. And a guy named Othniel takes the city. The name of the city means the city of books or the city of learning or the city of wisdom. So you have a man who's smart enough to take the city of wisdom. And guess what's the next thing he does? The next thing he does is listen to the wisdom of his new wife. That's actually the next thing that goes on. He listens to the wisdom of his new wife. His new wife then goes to Caleb and asks for, because they've taken some desert land, she asked for some wells. So the lesson here is clearly, if you're smart enough to take a city, you should be smart enough to listen to your wife. And that's kind of the way it, I think that's a big part of what the Jewish message is supposed to be here. God was giving him victory after victory, one after the other. It, it was going very well. Um, <clears throat> and then we run into Judges 1, 18 and 19. Now you need to know, as you're reading through it, oh, look at that, that's bad. Somebody gave me a trick, a water bottle. <clears throat> um, here's what begins to happen. We run into the first time, though, in Judges 1, 18 and 19. If you don't count them, not the, the uh, Benjaminites not wiping out um, the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Um, say that five times fast. Um, we run into this situation, which is an odd one. So in 18 and 19, and this, this passage is a favorite of, of the neo-atheists. I talked about it a little bit Wednesday night. I'm not going to go as much into it here as I did there, but it's worthy of looking at. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory. Now, every American knows the name Gaza because the Gaza Strip, is, which, is, which is governed by the Palestinians to this day, uh, or in this day, is where a lot of the source of strife and stuff like that comes from. And so there's a word you recognize. Gaza was a place where the Philistines lived. The Philistines were, I'll talk more about them in a minute. I'll, I'll wait on that. So, um, so he t- captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. These are three of the five Philistine cities. The Philistines are, they're, they're kind of the favorite bad guys of the Old Testament. Um, you've heard of them because of David uh, especially, but then others. I'll tell you more about them in a second. The Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. The hill country is tough to take. That's the area around Jerusalem and Judea and, and Judah area. That's, that's tough to take because it's hill country and there's fortified cities up there. And so it's impressive. But then you get this weird passage. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plains because they had chariots of iron. Now when you read that verse, it's easy to see this offset as, well, God was good God was, God was able to handle the, the seaside people, and God was able to handle the hillside people, but the valley people had chariots of iron. 
And that was more than God could handle. This is a tough passage. It's, it's almost an exact sister passage that's referenced three or four different times. And in all the others, it is very clear that God says, I can take out the people in the lowlands, the people in the valleys with the chariots and the iron chariots. So when you take this one as a reference to this, so I actually mentioned it um, and mentioned it to, to Paul, and Paul has, um, I don't know, like a, he has hound dogged this thing and continued to chew at it. Um, and, and here's what we found a lot of interesting things. For example, in the Hebrew, the word could, he could not drive out the inhabitants. In the original Hebrew, that word is not there. The original Hebrew just says they did not drive out the inhabitants. At some point along the way, when the Greek Old Testament was put together a couple hundred years before Jesus Christ, that's when the Greek word could was put in there. So this, this could have been a few hundred years ago, intended to, or a few thousand years ago now, intended to be they would not drive out. And, and here's the thing, even the word could, that's not, it's not like we don't have usages of the word could that don't make total sense here. Um, there was a, a lady who used to, I, I was teaching in a program, two of us were teaching, a guy named Eric and me, and, and the first, I don't know, four or five times that the woman referred to me as Eric and him as Chris, um, we corrected her, like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Chris, he's Eric. And then the very next time she would get up, she'd do it again, and she did it like five times in a row. And finally, we couldn't bear to correct her. Now, you see how I use the word could there? Does it technically mean unable? Were we unable to do it? No, no, no. We just, we chose not to because of the circumstances. And we use the word could under that situation. You get in the New Testament, you get a passage, and this is what the NIV claims, the translators of the NIV, why they use this word is because of the passage in uh, Mark 6.5. Got that one? This is talking about Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I always like that, by the way. He could do no mighty works. I mean, except for, I mean, healing sick people, of course. I mean, <laughs> but that barely counts, right? I'm always like, I wish I couldn't do stuff at that level. That would be nice. Um, but the idea here is the next verse says that he marveled. Verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. So clearly the reference here is Jesus is shocked that these people's lack of belief leads God's Holy Spirit to be unwilling to do this mighty work of healing. I don't think we picture Jesus going like, be healed. That didn't work at all. I don't think we picture that. A guy with a twisted arm didn't. What's going on is Jesus is going, listen, the Spirit is refusing to work with you guys at all. Your attitude is so bad. Your lack of faith is so awful that the Spirit is refusing to work. I am, I am stunned by your lack of belief that I've gone to Gentile places and the Spirit's willing to work. And here in Nazareth, he's not. I think, I think this is a similar situation. I don't think we're talking here about that, that God is now stymied or even Judah is stymied. If Judah had gone out and fought, God would have delivered the iron chariots. And in fact, in other places, he does. But in this situation, what we have is Judah's, I believe Judah's, Oh, being overwhelmed or, or too impressed. And the thought of facing iron chariots on flat ground like the Valley of Jezreel would have seemed suicidal. Um, there was, that would be like facing tanks with 22s. It would seem suicidal to go out and face a bunch of tanks with 22 rifles. 
But every time they were faithful to step up and face the enemy, they won. But they still couldn't make themselves get out there on that field. That's what I think is being described here. Um, again, I, I understand why the atheists think this is some you know, grand contradiction. I'm, I'm not kidding that this is like one of their best. Um, it makes me roll my eyes every time I'm like, man, you're reaching for straws if that's the best you've got. Anyway, so, but it's interesting to learn about and interesting to dig into. That's what I think is going on here. Don't, don't think that somehow iron chariots is Yahweh's kryptonite. Okay, so that's not, that's not what we're dealing with here. Um, so Judah takes Jerusalem. Benjamin is unable to remove all the Jebusites from it. Generations later, David is going to have to take the city again because of Benjamin's, the tribe of Benjamin's. Anytime I use a name, these people are all dead. Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, they're all dead. But the tribe is unable to or unwilling to take care of this. Um, the house of Joseph takes Bethel, the city of Bethel, by getting someone to show them into the city. Great little story. They literally just, they find a guy and ask him. It, it really comes across like that. They catch a guy outside the city and like, hey, if you'll tell us how to get in the city, we won't kill you. And he goes, okay, here. So um, it works. Um, some victories along the way, but the rest of this chapter one is filled with utter failure. It's as if that the, the guy comes up, he gives his report to you, hey, here's where we've had victory and victory and victory and victory, and we didn't quite get it all done here, and we didn't quite get it all done here, so there you go. And then you go, okay, good. Anything else to report? Well, I mean, now that you mention it, yes, Manasseh failed to take the most important key strategic cities around the Jezreel Valley. Bummer. Um, those are key fortifications. It's tragic. It's going to cost for the rest of Israel's history. Uh, Ephraim, no, they, did, they didn't do their part. Zebulun, I mean, no, no, they, they didn't win. Asher, Nephthali, Dan, Dan, actually Dan lost ground that Joshua had already taken. Um, so there's the end of my report. In the end, very few of the tribes followed through with what God had called them to do. Very few families and a very few heroes led to do great things, but for the most part, everyone else was half-hearted. They took servants rather than wiping or driving people out. When they would get an upper hand over their enemy, they would, they would turn them into slaves, which is not what God had instructed them to do. Yes, that's a fulfillment of Noah's prophecy over Canaan, but it is, it's not what God instructed the people of Israel to do in this situation. He specifically told them, do not make covenants with these people, do not make agreements with these people, and now they're doing that. They weren't doing the hardest work. They took the easiest work and sometimes did that, but the hardest work they failed at. They just didn't finish the task. Now, we talked about application. Chapter 1, here's, the, here's one of the big themes is community calling. What are we called to do? How about this for an application? What are we called to do that we are being half-hearted in? Or we're just doing the easy part? Or we're forgetting to take care of the final parts of it? Um, yesterday, we did a um, deacon half-day retreat. And uh, we talked about how, what a deacon is. The word just means servant. That's all, that's all the word deacon means. And so we talked about, but all Christians are called to be deacons. Actually, that Greek word is used numerous times by Jesus and others for all Christians. So then what is a deacon? Why do we ordain certain people and declare them deacons, which we'll be doing a week from Wednesday? Next, next week we're voting um, on the new deacon candidates, um, and you'll get an email with the information about them. 
So why do we do that? At our church, the deacons don't have the, they're not the decision-making group. There's, there's a lot of them. In fact, if, if all of these new ones get in, we'll have around 60, 50 to 60 deacons, um, which is not a bad thing if their job is to serve and not just serve. Here's what we decided. Here's what I decided I really believe this is about, is that who our deacons are are people that we're supposed to be able to point to and say, you need to serve like him. You need to serve like she does. That's what a deacon is. You should serve the way they serve. And so we point them out. Hey, there's one. If you don't know how to serve, serve like them. And even in particular, that if you say, how do I, how do, I do this kind of service? Okay? Well, here's one of them that's really good at this. How do I come alongside people who are hurting? Well, we've got this lady in the church named Dana. I don't, how, about, how about praying? Well, let me point you out Charlotte. This is, these, are, these are things that they do. How do I support the staff? Hey, here's a guy named Andy. Here's a guy named Bobby. Here's a, how, do, how do we lead from up front and guide? Well, here's, you need to look at Bill. I want to have an impact in the community. Here's David. Then we point to these people and say, these are people who are leading in the way, leading and serving in the way that we want everybody to be doing so. So if, if you don't mind, if you're a, if you're a deacon in the church, um, and you would, if you would, or, or one of our, 17, 20, 20 um, potential deacons that we're going to vote on next week. Let me go ahead and get you to stand. This is not what they like, but I'm going to do this anyway so that I, you can look and see like, okay, so here's the people who we're saying as a church, we're voting on and saying these are the people who we think model what it means to serve. So you'll look around and recognize many of them. Oh, they're our Sunday school teacher. Oh, that guy's on leadership board. Oh, that person's it. Right, Exactly. We don't make them servants by ordaining them as deacons. We admit they are servants and acknowledge their service by declaring them deacons because we want, them to, we want the rest of you to model after them. They're not perfect people. You guys can sit. Thank you. They're not perfect people. Don't go, hey, I know that guy. He's, he said something rude the other day. Yes, that's right. Um, and that's just the pastor. So <laughs> if, you, if you say, hey, that's... Uh, that's we are, we are all flawed. We are all imperfect. Maybe you had a bad business experience of one of them, or maybe you had a... Well, you, that's that's going to happen. They're flawed people just like the rest of us. But there's a way that they serve that our church caught our attention and said, you know what? We want people to do that. That's about that. And, that's, and the Christian life... Um, sneaky... Uh, by the way, and this was... Some of the, some of the deacons yesterday caught this. I actually... Um, I asked the staff um, to put aside their other responsibilities yesterday and prepare food and serve the deacons food yesterday, which was a sneaky way of turning the staff into examples for the deacons even of what it is. So that we would see that. Think about this. So pa the word pastor just means shepherd, the servant of the sheep. Minister means servant. Deacon means servant. Christian means little Christ who came as a servant. Um, for us to have so many opportunities for us to do this, as each, I don't, you don't have this verse, so don't panic, David. Um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. From 1 Peter. God has gifted you, and his intention is for you to serve others with that. There are too many opportunities to serve for us not be doing it. Sight.org is a wonderful example. If seeing that video... And watching Lewis lose it up here inspired you to go, I want to be a part of that. Good. Then, yeah. 
This never happens, I'm sure, huh? Never. Never. Only when Lewis. I just want to share something really cool. I will never, that to me is the most, oh, I love it. I love it. Something with me, and I will never apologize for it because I really, I pray to have those moments all the time, and sometimes I'm traveling and I'll just have glory days where I'm just losing it all day. But one strange thing with me, I never get emotional. My wife has been married to me all these years, and she has never seen me cry once. In fact, one of the things that hurts me is that a great fear of mine is I don't cry at all. Grandparents' funeral, love them. I can't cry. It's a really hard thing for me. But I know his intimacy, and every time I lose it, it's quick, and it's God, and it's just showing his love for what we're doing. And it's, it just, man, he just dances in heaven when he sees his kids going out and loving others. I'm just adding, I thought it may be useful. But um, anyway, go for it. Go for it. Thank you, Lewis. You're good, man. Thank you. All right, so that is an example, an example of a way for Christians to fulfill our common calling. Just like the people of Israel had a common calling that some of them took seriously and were heroes in, and other families took seriously, and some tribes took seriously, as a whole, they were pretty half-hearted about it. I don't believe the church replaces Israel, but sometimes we model Israel way too much. Sometimes we look way too much like the Israel half-heartedly going into Canaan. And so let me encourage you to challenge you each and all that you're involved in something, whether it's something like site.org. That's why we introduce ministries. We don't do that to pad time. Now, we run out of time most Sundays. We do that to introduce to you opportunities that you would say, that's something I would like to get my time, money, gifting, talents, energies behind. That's one. Um, we have the Thomas Ministry Auction this Wednesday for chronically ill children. And we raise support for chronically ill children. It would be a really fun auction with about 200, 250 people here. I think we've had 60 to 100 maybe at the last couple. Still raised, what, 25 grand at one of them? So there's still a few big items. It would be cool if we had a few more like big, cool things to be able to auction at that. But what we really need is, is people to step up and come and have fun and enjoy. How many, you know Matthew Peer? He's going to be on mic. That's all you need to know to know that this is going to be a, a wild and crazy experience. He intentionally is never allows himself to be on mic because he's afraid of what he's going to say. But for this event, we decided to risk it for two years in a row. It's, it's going to be a great time to encourage and uplift. That's one to get involved with. Good, do that one. In a few weeks, Compassion International will be here. We have a big compassion experience here. Get involved with them. There's plenty here. There's a few hundred children across the way. This is something, there are too many awesome, life-changing opportunities for us as Christians to be doing, to fulfill this common calling, to be doing nothing. And that's the average. One of our little mini mottos here is if, if, the, entire, if the entire fulfillment of your Christian life is, is able to be accomplished in three hours on Sunday morning, then you're not living the Christian life. And you're missing out on the most awesome aspects Think about the fact that we talk about Caleb 3,500 years later. We still name our children Caleb, an ancient Hebrew name. Because this guy was bad to the bone. He was a hero who all he did was what God told him to do. And we talk about him so much later. We're going to get a whole bunch of those as we go through Judges. So, Judges 2. Now the angel of the Lord 
went up from Gilgal to Bochum, I guess, Bochum, and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to the land where I swore to your fathers. Now, I'm just going to stop here real quickly. I had to look up what, what the angel of the Lord, um, who's this character who some believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In this case, it's, it's, it may just be an angel of the Lord. He, we think this is the same guy who we've already met before. I'm going to show you real quick. Let me finish reading this and I'm going to show you. But um, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And you will break down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now, bokeh means weepers. To be sorrowful. Broken hearted. We have no idea where it was in Israel. It's not, no one's discovered any place that's called that or, or whatever. But what's this with the angel of the Lord going from Gilgal to this place? He meets the armies there, tells them this, and then they begin to weep, which is why the name is given. What, what is this with the angel coming from Gilgal? Now, you may remember, if you remember your veggie tales, while the people of Israel were, were encamped at Gilgal. So Gilgal is where the people of Israel were encamped before they attacked Jericho. Um, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and on the evening in the plains of Jericho. That's Joshua 5.10, Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing there before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This is one of my favorite little passages in the Bible. This is so us. I, I just, man, this is good. And, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? I love that that's the dichotomy. There's two choices. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the, and the, and the guy says, neither. Nope. I'm not for you. Are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer in the ESV is no. That's just, that's just, no. Guess again. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. So in this case, I don't think we're talking about a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I think we're probably talking about Michael or one of the other grand archangels. It could be. It's hard to know. But no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord and I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord say to my servant? Now, that was the last time we saw this dude. I think this is who just, he's still been in Gilgal. I don't know if that's his base command in the spiritual world or what. But you got, you got to love that. Um, uh, I think it's Oliver Cromwell who was famous for having said, a lot of people ask whether God is, is on their side. When what we should be asking is, are we on God's side? That would have been the correct question here. How do I get on your side, sir? Like, <laughs> you scare me. I want to be on your side. Do I have to show the Baywatch picture again? I'm not showing the Baywatch picture again. I want the biggest and the strongest on my side. That's what, so I want to be on your side because you're the biggest. I, this guy shows up. I think it's the same guy. He shows up and he says, I, I thought we had an understanding. This is, this is God. God has said, I am your God. Maybe it is the exact same pre-incarnate Jesus Christ because the words he says are very much so the words of God. I brought you from Egypt and I swore to your fathers. So he's either speaking directly for Almighty God or this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is God speaking. Either way, this is serious stuff. What have you done? I told you to... Do you, does there any part of you like me that, that fears that 
I don't, I don't fear God in a wrath perspective. I grew up with a, a healthy father, and so I intuitively don't fear his wrath. But I do have this generalized sense of, I really don't want to disappoint him. And I have this image of, of, of I have this image that I think probably maybe we will hear is God going, what did you do? Here's, I told you to do this, and, and instead you were doing this. Like, I don't, I don't understand. That seems to be the message here, and they are broken by it. Scary passage. Listen to Judges 2.10. This should, this should make us nervous in America. Judges is hard to read. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. This is the generation that had fought alongside Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. I think this is an indictment of that, of that earlier generation. Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know what God had done? Do you see why it's the job of the family, the job of the parents to teach this to the children? The way God shows up isn't the same every time. And if we don't tell our children, here's what God has done. Do you have a miracle in your past? Do your children know your testimony? Do they know how you were, came to Jesus? If you have, do they know what God has done in your life? That's a, this is a, I think this is, this is a tough transition. One generation and it's over. And it says the next generation abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, this is where I've got to be careful, but the Baals were a, a, um, a group of kind of gods. The word Baal means Lord. And so they were kind of a group of gods, and, and they really kind of hovered around a single one. They were kind of all um, uh, mirror images of one. There's, there's a bunch of them. by diff- They go by different names, but in a sense, they're kind of all Baal, Lord. And, and the people of this region over the last few centuries had really developed their worship of Baal. Um, we, we could go back. In fact, when we go to Israel, we, look, we go to Megiddo, and we look at a 4,000-year-old Baal um, altar, altar to Baal. All it is is a giant stack stones. Um, and it's, it's creepy. Um, when I, the first time I went, we were able to actually go down to it. Um, and I don't, I mean, there's like a, a weird little creepinesses about it. Like at Megiddo, there are these huge black millipedes kind of everywhere. I mean, they're like this long black millipedes. And they are just crawling all over this altar. But I mean, that's just creepy. And nothing to do with the Bible. It's just creepy. There's bones. We, we found bones all in this, like scattered on this altar. Those aren't from 4,000 years ago. This was all buried under 40 feet of dirt. Things are still dying on that altar somehow. Like, it just has that weird, like, ugh. Well, the, the, the way the Baals, the way the Canaanites had learned to worship the Baals is, is that, gosh, see, this is really tough. So, um, the people of that time saw rain as the genetic material, if I may, of Baal falling down to earth. So they needed to get Baal excited so that he would do that. And Baal was a twisted pervert. And so the kind of things that got him, this this God, excited were things like children being sacrificed. The, the arms of Baal, the bronze altar. If you look at Baal, you will see pictures, drawings of the bronze altar of Baal standing like this. And they would superheat the bronze statue. 
so that the white hot bronze statue is standing like that. And then they would come lay their child in his hands. And Ashtoreth is the female consort of Baal. And so the other thing, everything else about the religion was either meant to get Baal excited or to convince Asherah to get her excited so that she would then go get Baal excited. The entire culture was dependent on this concept. So when you read in the Bible, when we get to Gideon and Gideon goes and cuts down the Asherah pole off of his, off of his husband's, his father's property, it shouldn't take too much imagination for the adults to understand what an Asherah pole was. You following me? Scattered all over the countryside on high places, giant examples of this. Meant to get Asherah in the mood to get Baal in the mood. That's the hyper... I mean, you think... You think Hugh is having a hard conversation uh, this week. The worshipers of Canaan were the most hyper-sexualized culture you can fathom, and it was all linked to just evil at the rot level. And that was the whole... I had a friend who was a, um, a martial artist, a nominal Christian, uh, and, and ever, always has been, uh, as long as I've known him. He just kind of barely is there. And... Uh, and uh, one day he was like, he came and he's like, okay, I'm reading the Bible like you told me all to. And I just got to the place where God's wiping out the Canaanites and I am not cool with that. Like that is not okay for him to send the people in to go kill all these people. So I taught him about the Baals and Asherah and I got done. He goes, yeah, kill them all. Wipe them out. I want them all gone. So his justice meter like, bing, 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 went up like that. This was a dark, perverse, twisted culture that makes ours look like, I don't know, daycare. I mean, it's, it was awful. So that's who God sent his people. That's what, and that's who God's people kept turning from Almighty God to worship these people, these gods. It, it, is, it is, can you imagine Yahweh's, why Yahweh kept going like, what are you doing? Why would you worship? I mean, of all the choices, you're going to worship these? I mean, the, the level of twistedness is just off the, so every time, we talk about the Baals and the Asherah. You've got to imagine that because we're going we're gonna to talk about them a lot. So the anger of the Lord, you think? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. One of the things that I remember Pike and I talking about for a sermon one time was, you can get angry and not love. But if you love, you're going to get angry. There's certain things that are going to inspire anger in you. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunderers who plundered them. And he said to them, sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand them. God stopped defending and fighting for his people. They were surrounded by their enemies. Real quick, why are they surrounded by their enemies? Why are their enemies all around? Because they left their enemies all around them. That's why. This is one of those great examples where you can't blame God. Sometimes, I, 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 you, you'll see some of those. Sometimes the hard things we face in life are because of the consequences of someone's sin, their foolishness, their stupidity, and by someone I mean our own. A lot of times the tragedy and stuff we face is our own, it's a responsibility for our own bad decision making. Now that's not always the case at all. 
Suffering is way more complex than that. Sometimes we suffer because of somebody else's sin. Sometimes we suffer because it's just a messed up world that needs a savior. There's a lot of ways for that. But sometimes we suffer. I love when Peter, when Peter's trying to explain this to the early Christians, he says, listen, if you're a slave and you get a beating from your master because you're a bad slave, that doesn't impress God. I mean, if you don't work hard and you don't do a good job and you get a beating, if you're, if you're bad at this and you get in trouble, that's not, that doesn't count as persecution. Sorry. That doesn't, you don't get points for persecution for being a slob or lazy or a slap. That you don't get points for that. Now, if you get, if you get a beating, even as a, even as a slave, if you get a beating for doing what's right, that is persecution and that impresses God. When you suffer for doing what's right, yeah, that's impressive. When you suffer because you earned suffering, no, sorry. See, that's not persecution. I love that Peter clarifies that for his people. And then we're going to start into the pattern. So I'm going to stop there, and we will pick up the last little bit with the pattern that we talked about some. And so next week, we'll pick up with a little bit more uh, on that. And then you'll get to learn more about the, um, the enemies of Israel. If you're, if you're reading along, chapter 3 would be a great place to start. We'll probably do at least 3 and 4 um, next week. So um, again, I hope, I pray that you will look around and see um, where would God individually as a family or whatever want me to be involved. Um, if you don't have a church family, this is, this is a, pretty, a pretty fun one. Um, we're dysfunctional, but, but we have a lot of fun together and we take God very seriously. Um, as we have a, a page on our website that says we take Jesus seriously, but not ourselves. Um, and so that's, that's really who we are. We've got ways for you to get to know us, and we would love for you to come live out family with us. Um, make sure, though, that you, you stop by the site.org table, um, that you look on the opportunities on the website, that you talk to the ministers and leaders, that you're involved in a life group, um, that you get involved and become a member so you can work with our children to raise up a new generation of believers. This, this whole live following Jesus thing is not a half-hearted kind of thing. Go all in. Get engaged. If you don't have any idea how to do that, come tell one of us and we'll point out a deacon or another leader in the church or another person with great passion and ministry and tell you, you know what? Get to know them and follow them. Do it like they do it. That's our prayer. So with that, let's pray. Father, you, um, you've given us so many opportunities to be involved in your work. Um, we, you don't need us. In fact, probably we're mostly underfoot. But because you love us, you let us be involved and you give us the opportunity and so humbly, Lord, we accept that. And we want to be involved in, I mean, I, I, I just want to get a little bit of partial credit for 250 people putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And for many others going from not being able to see their own grandchildren, for example, to then being able to see them. Um, God, if I, could, if I could just be a part of that in a small way, I sure would love that opportunity. For for working with the kids here and the youth here and one another and discipling each other and worshiping and leading and teaching. And God, that's what the church is so much of what it's about. And, and um, God, I pray that we'll get involved with coming alongside the people who need us the most, like people who have chronically ill kids. That diagnosis is just awful. Um, but as uh, the guy who founded that ministry here, Terrence, said, it's really cool not only to pray, but as he said it, to sometimes be the answer to other people's prayer. So, Lord, I pray that we would be the answer to other people's prayer, too. 
Thank you, Father, for so many examples of how amazing you are and how generous you are with us through your word and in every other way. Lead us, Lord. Give us what we need to fulfill what you've called us to. Help us to be obedient, to be heroes of the faith. Thank you for those examples in your son's name. Amen.